live in a dangerous and unpredictable world. Markets turn and economies crash without warning. Staying ahead of the investment game is more difficult than ever. Join me, Alameen Templeton, every day between 7 and 8 p.m. on Business Matters for concise news and analysis of important events that are shaping the world, your life, and your pocket. You snooze, you lose. This segment proudly brought to you by Capital Air. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Well, it's just gone 7 p.m. and that means it's another issue of Business Matters with me, your host, Anameen Templeton. Wondering what on earth am I going to speak about today? It's, uh, well, it's, um, the Juma is now behind us. It's uh, Yom Asabt, which is uh, Saturday. The sun has gone down. Yes, indeed. Uh, many of you probably not even listening to me because you're at Mia's farm. But there are people like me who, you know, didn't get the day off. Uh, we've got to sit and hold the fort. Um, and, uh, well, if you're at home and you've managed to wrest that uh, TV remote control away from your fanatical daughter's fingers demanding that she wants to go and watch um, uh, This Is Love, hmm? Why were that uh, Sheet and Raman Bala always trying to distract, aren't they? Oh, it's amazing how, you know, it's, it's, it's not even a Muslim program. I mean, it's a Hindu family. But I must say, you know, one thing about it, um, I, I, I have watched a few episodes just to kind of like, you know, find myself in a similar kind of grounding. Uh, uh, I do try and dis, uh, dissuade people from watching TV. But, uh, you know, um, there are set patterns. Um <clears throat> We need to work on these things. Yeah, the thing about uh, This Is Love, <clears throat> it's, uh, it features a family uh, in New Delhi, uh, Raman and Ashita Bala, and then there's all kinds of, you know, it's, uh, it's like a complicated modern Indian family in a modern city having to deal with all of the modern crises that come about as a result of trying to live according to a nuclear family model and uh, taking Western... Um, taking Western uh, standards and fashions and making them your own. So, you know, they all walk around in uh, modern Western clothing and so on. Uh, but then uh, um, Raman, uh, I believe, had a, he had a child with uh, another woman uh, who was a surrogate mother. And, uh, well, I don't know, um, it's a Sheeta and what's the other woman's name? Uh, I actually made a mistake once where I actually said that uh, the other woman was more, was prettier than Ashita, and well, well, that was that was uh, that was a big mistake. Apparently, no one wanted to speak to me for at least two weeks afterwards. Shagun, that's her name, Shagun. Yeah. So Shagun's uh, had uh, had. Uh, she's the mother of one daughter, and uh, she's the surrogate mother of uh, Raman's daughter, and. Um, that's Nilu, and uh, then there's young Piu. Actually, I'm not quite sure which one is which. Uh, it gets a little bit confusing. But the thing about it is that I like about that program is it's extended family. That's the way Muslims should be living. Uh, you don't move out of the house when you finish school. When you finish school, you start contributing to the house. 
You don't take all of that hard work that your parents have put into you, into getting you an education, into turning you into a decent human being, and then you go and work it all for yourself, which is the nuclear family model. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's the breaking of family ties with the reassurance that don't worry, the corporations will look after you. You don't need to rely on your children in your old age. You don't want to be what they say is a burden on your children in your old age. Like your, children, your kids weren't a burden all the way through. I mean, well into their 40s. <laughs> um, yeah. You need to raise your children to appreciate the fact that they'll be looking after their parents in the old age. In Islam, we're taught that in actual fact, the one who looks after the parents in the old age is the one that gets the most blessings. Uh, and that's how we, we, we should be working. I mean, if you, if you consider it, if uh, you're like, uh, like, say, we've got five brothers in a family and they've lived together their whole lives. And then uh, suddenly the, the one brother decides that, no, he needs to go off and work on his own. Or the brothers decide, well, you know what? Uh, we all be living in this big house all this time. It's time we each got our separate houses. And then they got separate houses, maybe even on the same street, in the same suburb. What happens when that happens? You no longer have that face-to-face contact. And that's another thing about this uh, Ashita Bala, um, This Is Love program. It's a, a, like, a, like Indian uh, Bollywood. They always show you when you have the moment of realization or the moment of accusation or the moment of shock and horror. You know, they'll show you about five or six um, camera takes of this person's face. And you see, look into this person's eyes. And then you go and you look into this person's eyes. And then you see this person as the realization dawns. And that person as the shock dawns. So, you know, you're like you have a, a dramatic moment. And then there's like about two minutes worth of like sort of face shots as the realization dawns on each individual's face. And uh, Indians uh, find this uh, very important, the face, the look. Um, And um, this is a vital part of family life, is face-to-face contact. You know, um, I uh, I have a Skype family. Uh, the family that I grew up in in Springs, my hometown. Hey, Springs! Uh, how's Murray Park nowadays? Oh, it's looking very sad, apparently. Well, anyway, um, the thing is um, that the FaceTime is important. Now, you see, uh, I, have a, I have a Skype family. I have a brother in Cape Town. I've got a, one brother still in Brackbounds Hall, one Templeton on the East Rand, still remaining. I live in Linasia. I have two sisters in Ireland and another brother in Australia. Now, we can phone each other uh, anytime we like and speak to each other on Skype. But the thing is, when you speak to someone on Skype, you don't call them uh, when you're feeling terrible and down, when you're having your dark moments, you know. You always put on your best face, you smile, da 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 yeah, you wear all the kids, yeah, we show you the house is looking lovely, yes, everything's nice. And, uh, yeah, the conversation is always about how you know, I'm fine, I'm fine, everything's wonderful. We never ever, like, you know, um, tell each other about the terrible things that are happening. Uh, And uh, that's the thing about face-to-face family. When someone is feeling terrible and they don't want anyone to see it, uh, at least your family can see it. You can see what's going on, what's troubling your brother. You can see you, uh, the, 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 your sister's going through a hard time. You can tell that your mother is trying to put on a brave face about something. You know, um, that face-to-face time is vitally important. You know, it's a small, tiny little thing. 
but face-to-face time is vital. I think it's in the um, the Jewish book of Proverbs that uh, uh, as a face in water, so face answers to face. Or uh, the face of a friend, like iron sharpens an axe, so the face of a friend sharpens the countenance of his friend. Um, you're able to be yourself more among people that you really know and you can trust. And in many ways, you can only get that with family. That level of, of, of trust you can only have with family, that level of intimacy. Um, in Islam, uh, well, you know, <clears throat> I haven't had heard any Alim speak about this. Uh, so, you know, according to my limited kind of uh, uh, knowledge, it's just a little theory that I built up by myself. Fine, okay. Okay, this isn't uh, strict Islamic law or anything. But as far as I can see, there are only in Islam, there are only two bases for identity, for your identity as a human being. And that is faith, your iman, and family. That is what gives you identity in the world. It's not the car you drive. It's not the clothes you wear. It's not the money you make. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not your social status of your family that gives you identity. It's your family itself. Uh, when you're in the womb, you're in your mother's womb. You're not in, in any other womb. It's only that womb. Seven months and ten days, you have perfect taqwa with Allah in your mother's womb, uh, having your cells nourished by her blood, uh, breathing the same air she breathes. You know, your 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 every single little fiber of your being comes into existence uh, in the blood and fluid and tissues of your mother. And uh, when uh, you're called uh, for judgment on the day of Qiyamah, and Allah Ta'ala wants you in the same condition He found you in, He doesn't want all these add-ons. He doesn't want you to arrive in there with a retinue of uh, followers who used to follow you around and tell you that what a wonderful person you are. He doesn't want a retinue of yes-men willing to stand up and say that you're a nice guy. Uh, he doesn't want to see the cars you drove. Uh, you know, um, you're not going to have a whole lot of clerks behind you saying, yeah, and he did this business deal, and he did this business deal, and he did this business deal. You know, you won't arrive there with a whole lot of patents and say, hey, see, I'm the greatest inventor the world ever knew. Uh, it's not the friends. You're not going to have friends around you. Everyone's going to be looking after themselves. Nafsi, nafsi, nafsi on the day of Qiyamah. You're going to be judged. According to who you were, who Allah Ta'ala made you. But even your family ties will be cut with death. There's only going to be you and your iman and your deeds. So don't get a false identity in the world. So anyway, that's why um, um, that's one of the reasons why. That's the only really program my wife watches is uh, This Is Love. Uh, and uh, well, how else are we going to access um, Marcus Sahaba? Uh, other than with our decoder. Well, alhamdulillah. Uh, today uh, being, uh, well, as we say, it's now Yom Asabd. But uh, yesterday it was Juma, And, uh, well, you know, I went and looked at the JSE and there was nothing happening. Nothing happening on the JSE. I went on to MoneyWeb. There's nothing happening there. I went on to Fin24. There was nothing there. Business day. Um, all of these places. I don't know what's happening to this country. It's going to the docks. No, of course. It's because the Nasaras are having their... There are four days of mourning uh, the non-existent crucifixion, crucifixion uh, that didn't happen. 
Uh, so anyway, um, uh, either either you got the day off or you had me as farm. Uh, may Allah Ta'ala bless uh, the Ishtima there. Uh, may he bless them with clement and beautiful, pleasant weather the whole time they're there. May he protect them from any evil and may he increase the good there and may he um, drench them in nur and uh, strengthen the unity of the Ummah. May he make the Ishtima a success. Ameen. Right, so anyway, today, you know, I've been a, not really a business day. I thought, well, uh, let me go and get a few little interesting tidbits from around the, um, from around the world. And I went and went through past um, programs that I prepared for. And uh, very often towards the end of the program, there's a whole lot of stuff that I haven't actually spoken about that I wanted to speak about. Okay, so today, uh, inshallah, we're going to have capitalism is failing us all. Should is- Islamic economics be the answer? We're going to be having a look at artificial meat. Uh, this week, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States um, has started uh, giving its first approvals for um, manufactured meat, uh, laboratory manufactured meat. Uh, what does this mean? Um, uh, clearly, there's a, there, there's a strong need for it. What with um, Burger King bringing out their uh, their veggie burgers um, that have got marmite added with them, got a yeast extract into it, make it taste meaty. Uh, anyone who's eaten marmite uh, will know their taste. Uh, so yeah, you know, so you get in some people who are actually like willing to um, um, murder a potato and then. Um, further drench its poor little body in in marmite and then pretend that it's a um, well a beef burger so anyway um there's all kinds of questions about it of course like is it halal so uh, yeah we'll be looking at that a little bit later in the show uh today also uh escom uh, sneaked well uh, this week escom sneaked through uh, another little loan, and that's after Tito Mwene had made all those promises uh, during his budget speech that, uh, you know, SOEs, uh, state-owned enterprises, are going to have to pay their own way. And now we get this dodgy little secret loan that's been going through, um, uh, three billion rands. Well, in actual fact, it's now for five billion rands. Uh, for to co- they got five billion rand to cover a three billion rand loan. Uh, and, uh, well... You know, so it's not like we didn't notice there's an extra 2 billion rand uh, added onto that. You know, 2 billion rand is a lot of money. Did you know that if you wanted to count to a million, how long do you think it would take you? Uh, do you think it's physically possible to count to a million nonstop? I would say that it is, in actual fact, physically impossible to count from 1 to 1 million nonstop. It's impossible because it'll take you 11 and a half days. That's if you do it nonstop. You know, there's 84,600 84, seconds in a day. That means that if you just count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 19, 11, 12, you keep, you keep on doing that all the way through 124,621, 124,622, you know. Uh, it's going to take you 11 and a half days, probably even longer, because you really start slowing down after the first day. Uh, whether or not you'd be, you'd, uh, be able to uh, get beyond 500,000 is, uh, is a question. It'll take you 11 and a half days just to count 1 million. 1 billion is 1,000 million. So it would be 11 and a half thousand days to count to 1 billion. And, uh, well, uh, uh, 23,000 days to count to 2 billion. 23,000 days, how many years is that? Uh, sure, it's uh, something like um, 
And it's either 70 or 700 years, probably 700 years. Uh, my mathematical kind of abilities were stretched to the limit there. Um, yeah, so, you know, 2 billion rand isn't a small little amount. Uh, but to cover a 3 billion rand uh, hole in, in, its, in its funding stream, ESCOM has been given 5 billion. Uh, there's a big difference there, you know, between three billion and five billion. Uh, Tito Mawani has issued a statement saying that no, but um, you know, uh, this was uh, this was because we were expecting a loan from uh, China, Chinese Development Bank that didn't come through. So we went around to Absa and we asked for some money. We've been given that money, and we're fully expecting the money from China to come through at the end of the month. Well, it's a little bit odd, you know, um, China is sitting on a huge big cash pile of money. It's not like, uh, you know, it's got the biggest uh, cash pile in the world. It's well over $3 trillion worth of U.S. treasuries. Uh, it's one of the big reasons why the world is in so much kind of financial turmoil at the moment. It's all going back to, this is like pre-2008 stuff. Stuff that hasn't really been addressed. Uh, and... Yeah, okay. So, yeah, they're hoping that the money is going to come through at the end of the month. And if the money doesn't come through at the end of the month, if there's a reason why ESCOM, uh, China hasn't sent through this loan, well, then there's going to be a really interesting uh, questions being asked. Um, why, why, why did it need to get this loan in the first place? Well, he's, Dieter Moweni says that uh, application we made for the loan, it was part of all the agreed structured finances uh, that had been lined up before the budget, that had been approved before budget. So this is a string of um, uh, approved structured finance uh, that was on the table in the pipeline before the budget and now suddenly has disappeared out of the pipeline so they had to plug a hole. Uh, the Democratic Alliance is trying to make a big noise about it, saying just before the May 8 elections that there you see, uh, government is not playing with open cards. Government is keeping stuff away from us, and in actual fact, uh, ESCOM is about to implode. Uh, well, uh, you can make of it what you will. Uh, they're, they're, those are basically the bare facts that, that are before us. Uh, we'll also be having a look at uh, some comments of former U.S. President Jimmy Carter made about uh, Donald Trump and his fears of uh, China taking over the world. We'll be looking at a bit of Africa growth, uh, some finances up late in the show. So, inshallah, let's get on with it, shall we? Capitalism is failing us all. Could Islamic economics be the answer? Um, this is a view by Mohammed Yassil Harq of Euronews. So this is like a mainstream European newspaper, and uh, this is the article that he wrote. I thought I would just read it out to you and uh, let you think both in terms of what he has to say about Islamic finance as well as what other people, not just himself, um, have got to say about capitalism and how Islamic finance could solve the problems of capitalism. <clears throat> He says billionaire Ray Dalio, he's the manager of the world's largest hedge fund Bridgewater, recently shocked the world when he announced that capitalism is failing and that a revolution is coming. There is no denying that global inequality is at unsustainable levels and that interest-based economies are no longer fit for purpose. In many countries, interest rates are too low to incentivize saving at all. 
He says, I believe that Islamic countries, you know, with its 2.5% zakat wealth tax and much lower taxes in other areas, might give us a clue as to how to eliminate the worst social inequality. And with the prohibition of abuse of high interest in businesses and incentivization away from interest-based savings accounts, it could reinvigorate the global economy. These are not just Islamic economic concepts. They are universalist traditional Abrahamic ethics and a common sense way for all of us to truly enjoy a free market. Once we strip away the Arabic terminology, concepts concepts like zakat can return our economies to the common sense-based, transparent and equitable setup that the architects of modern capitalism envisaged. Dalio's statements matter, not only because of how strongly worded they are, but also, now these are, these are words by um, the world's biggest uh, fund manager, the manager of the world's biggest fund manager. Uh, that's what he says. He says uh, the Abrahamic ethics, saying that you know Jews, Jews can't uh, complain about them, and uh, Americans uh, they can say that uh, well, well uh, you know we, we we're not going to have the Muslims, uh, but uh, well you know if the Jewish say it's okay, well then well then okay, we have to pretend we're not being Islamic, we're being Jewish. <laughs> I mean, anyway. Um, uh, be that as it may, uh, according to Muhammad Yesil Hark, uh, Dalio's statements matter not only because of how strongly worded they are, but also because of how topical they are in today's news climate. They are significant because of who Dalio is, that is to say, probably the most successful hedge fund manager in the world. One of my colleagues commented last week that this was the equivalent of the Pope declaring that Catholicism is failing. Well, uh, actually, on that point, recently the Pope actually allowed um, uh, the reading of the Quran uh, and uh, I think even Salah to be made in the Vatican. Uh, so, I, uh, yeah, okay, well, we'll move on from that point. Dalio's words are perhaps more shocking because they violate one of the most sacred unwritten rules of the global rich. You're not allowed to criticize capitalism if you have benefited hugely from it. Protest or even displeasure within the system is a luxury. Only the poor can afford. It's normal to see cleaners or even Uber drivers angry at inequality. It's less normal to see the world's wealthiest publicly stating that the order to which they owe their success is not providing the American dream. Like the no protest for the rich rule that led billionaires to challenge their sense of responsibility, frustration or even guilt into philanthropy. This means that we seldom have the wealthy, wealthy discuss these issues, let alone the root causes from which these problems arise. These root causes go deeper than many of us realize and addressing them will mean re-examining not only our economics but our politics and values. Most of us want a societal order where there isn't a huge vacuum between the classes. Unfortunately, this gap keeps widening as casino capitalism and high-interest consumer products entrench divisions. To create societies where there is mutual respect and compassion, we need an environment of reconciliation between the elites and the masses. The only way to achieve this is through a wealth tax, such as the payment of zakat, one of the pillars of Islam, and an effective tool in addressing our current issues. But first, to reform a failing capitalism, we need to fix two things, taxation and the interest rate system. Uh, in fact, I'll go further, I'd say three things, and uh, the corporate identity system, in that uh, only corp the only business uh, grouping uh, that should be allowed is one that has direct representation. Here, I was just speaking about the face-to-face -face, um, 
communication, direct representation. So you can't have people hiding behind masks in order to hide away their corruption. You don't have companies transferring funds in between themselves like they had with Steinhoff and therefore massaging each other's relative uh, market uh, valuations uh, and then using that in order to go and get big loans and promising people all kinds of things based on the valuations that you've massaged with your friend. In the, you know, you, you, you can't have Coca-Cola going along and destroying a community one day and then going around a few years later and saying, hi, we're here, we're going to give you jobs, we're your friend. You can't have people hiding behind that mask. Islam expects direct. When you buy something, you have to buy it from someone, a clearly identifiable other person. Not a Coca-Cola or an Anglo-American or a De Beers or a Procter & Gamble or a Huawei or a Westinghouse or a Toshiba. It must be with another person. Uh, And that's why I say here in South Africa, we need to unlock uh, the inherent potential that is in our extended family network. South Africa has got a very strong but completely ignored um, extended family network that could be put to use to the economy in a far more efficient way than corporations are doing. I would argue that in actual fact corporations occupy that space that the clan is supposed to occupy in society. Because, you see, we're all individuals, fine, we're growing up, we've got individual rights, and we, we like, you know, becoming, coming and going into our individual identities and our individual bodies and so on, and we've got individual ambitions and so on. Instead of those being looked after by the corporation, instead of our pension needs being hijacked by corporations who are now going to steal our money just before we go into retirement, instead of uh, corporations stealing the money that we send every week to our medical aid, uh, uh, and and paying it off into super efficient and highly expensive hospitals. And uh, you go to hospital and you get one little dab of cream and they charge you for the whole tube. You would get one gauze and they charge you for the whole pack. Uh, to do away with those things, instead of people stealing your, your medical aid money, in P- instead of people stealing your insurance money, you have a social security net around, net around you, which is the clan. Um, if you live together and you share your costs and you cross-subsidize your living costs, your living costs go down and your living standards go up rather than the opposite as you have in the United States and Europe and in South Africa as well. Anywhere where you have the nuclear family economy, uh, you see basically what I'm suggesting is a fundamental revision of economic understanding of the basic foundation of society. And that is that the foundation isn't nuclear economy. You use your basic building block of your economy is the clan. And, uh, and that then puts more power in people's hands. It gives proper representation. It does away with the need to classify people according to race in South Africa. Yeah, we have 24 years after democracy and everyone is still being classified according to race. Huh? We need something to move away beyond that. So anyway, as I say, uh, I would, uh, it's, it's probably because this guy's writing, uh, in Europe and, uh, and Europe has basically destroyed its extended family ties and has only allowed extended family ties for the 1%, for the rulers and kings and for the bankers, of course. Uh, uh, yeah, le coup de banque. That's what the French Revolution was all about, replacing kings with bankers. Uh, 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, Europe has destroyed its extended family uh, ties and reserved it only for the 1%. Ever since the Council of Nicaea, where the four Gospels were put together and the Christian Bible was put together, the Council of Nicaea, that was called because the uh, Roman Emperor uh, Constantine uh, had converted to Christianity, and now he wanted to make Christianity the official religion of Rome. That meant that all of the bishops were now going to be officially recognized by the Roman Empire, and the bishops were now going to be the magistrates of the cities and the towns all over, the provinces of Rome. They were going to be the people in control. So this was a huge, big political advantage. Now, this is why I would argue the, the, the Council of Nicaea was met, because a whole lot of ambitious people wanted to turn religion into a money-making enterprise. Because there was a lot politically at stake. It wasn't just the fact that Christians would have the support of the Roman Empire behind them, but they would become an intrinsic part of that empire. And built into that empire was that 99%, 1% divide, where only members of the senatorial class were able to become uh, rulers of the country. Uh, everyone else were plebeian masses, and basically they had to make do as best they could. Uh, so basically, the Catholic or the Christian Church adopted this whole kind of uh, social structure when it held the Council of Nicaea and it put together, it concocted its four Gospels of the Bible that we know today. Um, that uh, uh, Council of Nicaea, uh, a, a bishop called Arius stood up and he denounced them and he said, this is a lot of nonsense. It has always been the Abrahamic tradition of one God and that's it, nothing. Jesus is not God. And they said, well, you just one man. Get out of here. Where are your books to support us? Like, you know, every single book of the Jewish Bible before that would have supported it. But because he didn't have one of those little uh, little Christian books, you, you, you won't find any of those Christian books in the, um, uh, not the Hebrew language, what language? Uh, Aramaic. That was the language that Isa spoke. Not one, not one of those Gospels will you find in the original language. They're all Greek translations. So, uh, you know, uh, the Christians uh, have, got, have got no access to the original documents. And, uh, yeah, uh, but anyway, uh, be that as it may, as a result of this, Europe lived with a 1%, 99% uh, social divide for 2,000 years. I mean, they've completely wiped out extended family ties. So this may be one of the reasons why, I mean, uh, Europe, even if they do move to the system, it still won't work unless, of course, they uh, do unleash uh, or, or clan ties start developing. Uh, but here in South Africa, we already have that. Why can't we turn those ties to economic advantage instead of uh, leaving it out on the periphery in terms of the informal sector, you know? Why, why, why should the clans of South Africa be always on the sidelines? Why can't we bring them into the core, bring them into the center, make them more powerful than Anglo-American or De Beers or uh, Naspers? Hmm? Why can't we do that? Anyway, we'll get back to this, uh, uh, this issue uh, after this quick commercial break, inshallah. Marukha Sahaba, the voice of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Assalamu alaikum, welcome back. Well, if you want to share your views on anything that I'm speaking about or even something completely off topic, you can give us a call here in the studio in Lanesia on 010 001 004. 
That's 010-00-11004. Or you can, uh, you can WhatsApp us a message. Our telephone number or our WhatsApp number is 084-786-3132. Uh, right, okay. So getting back to the article that we were speaking about just before the break, uh, the, the writer says that there are two things that need to fix uh, if you want to reform a failing capitalism, that is taxation and the interest rate system. He says taxation is easy and far less field to critique since there is an emerging consensus that the global tax system is simply no longer working. He says through a combination of tax avoidance schemes, tax havens and even relatively innocent methods like transfer pricing, high net worth individuals and their corporations have very little if any tax to pay on their wealth. But they're only able to get, do all of these schemes by using the mask of corporation in order to hide their two identities. So if we do away with that and only have direct representation with family companies where the, fa- the company is not transferable, it is only ownable by the people born into the family, then you always know exactly who you're dealing with when you're dealing with the company. Uh, yeah. So anyway, that's what I mean by a, a family company. Uh, n- not very different from uh, what we understand nowadays as family trusts. But this would be a trading trust that would uh, that would you know um, have 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 many of the um, have many of the benefits uh, that uh, corporations uh, enjoy, but also have special rights as well, such as like say for instance you have a clan here in South Africa, or one clan lives in uh, the Transkei and one clan lives in Rustenburg. Uh, now the uh, the Transkei guys uh, have, for the last uh, sixty years, been mining the platinum underneath the feet of uh, the people who own it. Um, uh, the Buffer King tribe. Let's take the Buffer King tribe for instance. So the Buffer King and uh, the Nobos they get together, and uh, they decide, okay, right, we've got this platinum stuff. How are we going to get it out of the ground? How are we going to get it to market? And the, and the clans get together, and the clans decide how to do it. Now, say uh, the Ngobo, uh, with the mining expertise, uh, they bring all of the Ngobos of, of their clan together. They say, okay, we're going to remove, uh, we're going to mine this piece of ground for this amount of money. We contract with this clan, which owns it, and uh, they would like, uh, they're going to be selling and doing all kinds of other things with smelting and all that kind of stuff. We just concentrate on mining. And uh, we call everyone in the clan together. Uh, you've got 50,000 people who arrive there, and they, and they work. Uh, they'll be unregulated. Their working conditions are unregulated. Uh, their pay is unregulated. Uh, and uh, the clan is able to uh, charge as much as it pay each person as much as they like. Because you see, each person in the clan... Uh, is part of the family. So in actual fact, you're paying your family. You can speak to any uh, Indian businessman in South Africa. If he does maintain uh, family ties with his business, if he, like, you know, employs his nephew, uh, he's got his uncle over there, his brother's here, his son's over there, his daughter's there, you know, she's taking uh, charge of accounts, he's at the front door, he's the mechanic, uh, he's the guy that does the inspections, he's the guy that does the books. You know, it's all in the family. When you pay them at the end of the month, you're actually just, in a way, paying yourself. You know, if, if you're a father and you go home with your salary, you've got to spend your salary on your kids, your daughters, and everything like that anyway. 
So if you put your business together with your family, instead of you paying them, the clients come and pay them. Uh, and as a result of the cross-subsidization, because you're all living together, uh, you're actually paying yourself every time you pay one of your family members. That means that you can pay them less. That means you can charge your clients less. That means you're more competitive than an ordinary corporation. So this is a way of unlocking our low wage potential in South Africa, as well as bringing justice to the workplace. Because you see the family, they know each other, they love each other, they're not going to kill their own family, they're going to look after their own family, so they can pay a very low wages, but they're always paying themselves. Uh, that also means that anyone else who comes and gets a job with, say, a family company like this, will uh, will be uh, they the the clan will not be able to treat them any less than any other member of their clan. But it means that they'll be able to pay them the same salary as they're paying all of their clan members. Uh, but that is a way of opening up uh, uh, employment and getting rid of unemployment in South Africa. It's a means of developing the rural economy. It's a means of bringing the, the rural, econ uh, rural economy and the urban economy together. Uh, it's a means of, of real identity instead of this racial identity, which, which is no identity whatsoever. It's an alienating identity. It's a non-identity. You know, get rid of South Africa's racial problem. Get rid of South Africa's uh, rural problems. Get rid of South Africa's pay problems. Get rid of South Africa's unemployment problems. So many things can overcome, over, be overcome simply by taking away this veil of the West and throwing it away. Uh, so anyway, yeah, okay. So now he says that in actual fact, uh, taxation just isn't working around the world anymore. He mentions transfer pricing. That's where a company uh, uh, sells stuff to itself or gives stuff to itself. Like say, I've got, I've got a mining company in South Africa. I've got a mining company in Papua New Guinea. who just discovered a new ore deposit in Papua New Guinea. Uh, our ore bodies are getting worked out here in South Africa. I transfer a whole lot of equipment across to Papua New Guinea. I have to charge my own subsidiary the same price as I would charge an ordinary customer coming in off the street uh, I'm not allowed to give myself a discount because it's part of the corporation however with a family company you would be able to do that so yeah it, 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 it puts everything all on its head uh, you know uh, you, 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 uh, you're encouraging uh, what in the nuclear family economy would be called nepotism you know you employ people in your company your, you, you employ your family first you look after your family first. You take it away from uh, the care of the state and the pension fund and the insurance company and the medical aid, all of whom are ripping you off. Yeah, so anyway, that's, that's my suggestion here for South Africa. Uh, in the absence of effective wealth taxes, governments have no choice but to enforce taxes that perhaps unfairly target the poor, like sales tax and inheritance tax, things we know about here in South Africa. The injustice of some of these taxes further normalizes tax avoidance and polarizes society even more. Critiquing the interest rate system is more controversial. Most people feel that possessing money has some inherent value that should be recognized in a zero-risk way. But with the negative interest rates spreading around in the developed world nowadays, interest rates are so low in many countries that they simply do not fulfill their purpose of incentivizing consumers to save any longer. In short, as Deutsche Bank's Jim Reed titled his research report last year, we might be witnessing the start of the end of fiat money. Therefore, our current fiat-based monetary system might require a rethink. Fiat money is money that, uh, that is printed. 
um, printed uh, in order to pay uh, a debt. A government takes out a debt with a bank, and they call it a bond. Then in order to pay back that money, the government prints money and distributes it uh, to, uh, into the economy. Um, about the Sviat money, the actual cash that you hold in your hand, they call M1 is only a tiny representation of the real value, of the total value in the economy. Uh, the RANDs, they only, they only manufacture enough bank notes, right, to cover the daily transaction needs of the banks. Uh, all the banks on a daily basis, they need to, uh, people come in and say, we want some money, you know, I've got a business, I, I need 40,000 rand for the day in order to pay off these things, da, 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 da. So they have to hand over 40,000 rand cash. Um, and so other people come in and they say, I want to deposit this money. So on, a, on a, any given daily basis, there is an amount of money that has to be available in banknote and coin form. Uh, but that's only a tiny little representation of the entire amount of money that is supposedly in the system. Uh, so this is results in what we call fiat money, uh, interest-based money that is, uh, that is generated through government debt. And, and that is what we then work in on, on a regular basis. That's just a very short-lived uh, explanation of what fiat money is. After all, you know, it's, it's not backed up by real gold, for instance. You know, Britain worked, uh, moved off the gold standard after the First World War. I mean, the Second World War. No, the First World War in the 1930s, Britain, uh, during the Great Depression, Britain moved off the gold standard and started issuing fiat money. Well, actually, they moved on to silver, on to sterling. Uh, the United States moved off the gold standard after the Vietnam War when they discovered in actual fact they didn't have any gold left to, to, to cover their debts. That's when they went to Saudi Arabia and said, won't you please back our dollar with your oil sales? Uh, that's where they really started. They're, in fact, the first time I've investigated this also, they're, they're, the first time where that suggestion was made that Saudi Arabia's oil reserves be used to back the dollar was in actual fact made by President Eisenhower after the Yalta conference during the World War II. As he was sailing back to the United States uh, through the Red Sea, they stopped off in Saudi Arabia, and this is where it was agreed that uh, Saudi Arabia would sell its oil in gold. I mean, uh, sell its oil in dollars. Uh, but it only really started coming uh, as, a, as a formal entrenched system after the Vietnam War when America ran out of money. Huh? You see, it's killing and murder. That was bankrupt their, their, their companies. This is what brought, uh, brought about the whole fiat money thing that we know today, the fractionalized banking system, where a bank only has to maintain a fraction. Uh, its reserves, its actual cash that it hasn't deposited is only a fraction of its loan book, the amount of money that it's allowed to loan, lend, uh, or rather borrow to people. So um, if a bank has what, uh, got a billion rands worth of customers' money in its bank vault, so one billion rand, of uh, hard cash on hand, it can then uh, lend 10 billion rands to people, 12 billion rands in South African law. In some American states, it's 30 billion. Huh? Imagine one billion dollars you have and you're allowed to lend, uh, um, or rather borrow out uh, 30 billion rands. Yeah. So they're, 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 that's fiat money. That's what the fiat money system is that they speak about. The writer then says, therefore, our current fiat-based monetary system might require a rethink 
after all, in the grand scheme of global economic history, it can still be considered an experiment, as the vast majority of human history was based on gold and silver-backed sound money. Current proponents of digital currencies, such as Bitcoin, are proposing a new form of supranational sound money based on maths quasi-digital gold for the globalized world. Islamic economics, on the other hand, can give us a clue to solve both these issues. Zakat, or Islamic arms, charity, is a simple, transparent annual wealth tax of 2.5%. Let's only consider tax havens where an estimated wealth of $10 trillion is held around the world. That means if Zakat was paid on these funds, perhaps as some kind of amnesty agreement, there would be 250 billion rand a year flowing into the world's poorest areas and worthiest causes. At the same time, other taxes could be reduced or eliminated. In return for the wealth tax, Islamic economics suggests almost zero tax in every other area, including inheritance. Solving the interest problem will be more gradual and will require a rethink of the monetary system we currently live in, as I previously mentioned. I can't see a sudden global ban on interest, but governments, particularly those with low interest rates, could incentivize other forms of investment, increasing regulation around abuse of high interest targets and businesses to start with. Some of, the might, some of these steps might seem very drastic, but once you strip away the Arabic terminology, concepts like Sakat can return our economies to the common sense-based, transparent and equitable setup that the architects of modern capitalism envisaged. When the richest guy in the room is telling you the game is rigged, it's time to change the rules. Well, there you go. Okay, there's food for thought. Uh, now, uh, former President Jimmy Carter told a church congregation last weekend that he had spoken with President Donald Trump about China the day before and said the commander-in-chief was worried that Beijing had outpaced its global rivals. According to Emma Hurt, a reporter for NPR affiliate at WABE, Carter Call spoke of the call during his regular Sunday school lesson at Maranatha Baptist Church in his hometown of Plains, Georgia. Carter, who's 94 years old, said Trump was worried that China is getting ahead of us and suggested the president was right to be concerned. He told the congregation that Trump feared China's growing economic strength. Economic modeling indicated that China would overtake the U.S. as the world's strongest economy by 2030. And many experts have said that we are already living in what has been dubbed the Chinese century. Carter said he did not really fear that time, but it bothers President Trump and I don't know why. I'm not criticizing him this morning. Carter, who normalized diplomatic relations between Washington and Beijing in 1979, suggested that China's breakneck growth had been facilitated by sensible investment and buoyed by peace. Since 1979, he said, do you know how many times China has been at war with anybody? None. And we have stayed at war. The U.S., he noted, had only enjoyed 16 years of peace in its 242-year history, making the country the most warlike nation in the history of the world. This is, he said, because of America's tendency to force other nations to adopt our American principles. In China, meanwhile, the economic benefits of peace were clear to the eye. How many miles of high-speed railroads do we have in this country, he asked. While China has some 18,000 miles of high-speed rail, the U.S. has wasted $3 trillion, rand, $3 trillion on military spending. It's more than you can imagine. China has not wasted a single penny on war, and that's why they're ahead of us in almost every way. He says, and I think the difference is, if you take $3 trillion and put it in American infrastructure, you'd probably have $2 trillion left over. 
We'd have high-speed railroad. We'd have bridges that aren't collapsing. We'd have roads that are maintained properly. Our education system would be as good as that of, say, South Korea or Hong Kong. Before he left the pulpit, Carter noted, I wasn't comparing my country adversely to China. I was just pointing out that because I happened to get a phone call last night, and that was from Donald Trump. The Trump administration remains locked in a costly trade war with China, though Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin said Saturday the end could be in sight. He said, I think we're hopeful we're getting close to the final round of concluding issues. Meanwhile, military tensions remain over Chinese territorial claims in the South China Sea. Like, you know, it's the China Sea. You know, I mean, we call it the China Sea for a reason. And it's continuing insistence that the independent island nation of Taiwan will eventually fall back under Beijing's control. All right. Now then. There's a country which is likely to surpass the United Kingdom to become the second most targeted country for payment card fraud this year, a research firm has said, highlighting inadequate defense against cybercrime of financial institutions in the country. And which country do you think that is? Huh? More fraud than the United Kingdom. Yeah, it must be a very... Huh? United Kingdom. How many people live in the United Kingdom? 60, 70 million people. The country that's likely to surpass the United Kingdom is India. How many people live in India? 1.1 billion people. 1.1 billion people uh, are still not able to have as much corruption in their society as the United Kingdom. Hmm? Says something about the United Kingdom, doesn't it? Over 3.2 million Indian payment card records were compromised and posted for sale in 2018, targeting the country to the third position in the world in card frauds, Gemini Advisory said in a blog post. In an attempt to make India a cashless economy, Prime Minister Narendra Modi has been promoting the use of digital payments after replacing high-value currency notes to crack down on the black market economy. But a rapidly growing middle-class population opting to use cards for purchases and rising internet penetration make India an attractive target for cyber criminals, according to the report. A combination of lucrative targets and insufficient defense measures may make many Indian institutions attractive to hackers, the report said. According to the Thales Data Threat Report, 52% of surveyed Indian companies reported a data breach in 2018, compared with a global average of 36%. So India's on 56%, on 52% of the world is on 36%. On the brighter side, 93% of surveyed Indian companies are increasing their security spending, the highest percentage that Thales found anywhere in the world. Um, there's a little word over there in that story that maybe you missed out on, and that word is Thales. Where have we heard Thales before? Now we've got this company, Thales, uh, telling us about security and cutting down on corruption and all of that. Thales, yes, that's right. It's uh, the, the French company formerly known as uh, Thompson CSF. Uh, Thales, uh, the company that paid all those bribes to our corrupt president, Jacob Zuma. And uh, they've given us advice on how to avoid corruption. Very nice. You see, that's what happens when you have the corporate mask. Thales used to be Thompson CSF. It had to change its name after it was found that it had been uh, bribing French politicians, as well as politicians all around the world. But when the French found that their own companies were now starting to bribe their own politicians, they said that was completely unacceptable. And then uh, Thompson CSF changed its name to Thales, and then the French public were happy again. Yeah, so you see, that's the West's veil doing its job. 
Soon, we won't need animals to eat meat, at least not much of them, just their stem cells. Earlier this month, the FDA and the United States Department of Agriculture met to discuss how to regulate on what to call meat grown in laboratories rather than on animals. Clean meat, in vitro meat, artificial meat, or even alt meat have been suggested by industry leaders anxious to brand a new product as a humane and environmentally friendly alternative to factory farming. But the United States Cattlemen's Association worries that the term meat will confuse consumers. You know, uh, since these products will directly compete with traditional farm-raised meat. Uh, well, they say the real meat industry prefers less appetizing terms like cultured tissue. Production of cell-cultured meat involves retrieving alive animals' adult muscle stem cells and setting them in a nutrient-rich liquid. The clusters of multiplying cells grow around a scaffold, which helps the tissue take on a desired shape, whether you want nuggets or patties, for example. The result is a product that looks and tastes like meat because it's made from animal cells rather than plant-based products. Well, that's what they say. I still haven't eaten any of this stuff. Um, you know, I don't know. Will there be muscle fibers in it, or is it just a, like a paste? I like that, what they call it, the pink slime that they make the, 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 the McDonald's patties out of. Until now, the FDA was expected to regulate up-and-coming cell-cultured cell food products, but in a recent meeting with the United States Department of Agriculture, the two agencies decided they would jointly monitor the technology. In a November, November 16 last year press release, the agencies announced that the FDA would oversee cell collection, cell banks, and cell growth and differentiation, which is important for Muslims, while the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, will oversee the production and labeling of the poultry and livestock products. The statement noted that the agencies have the statutory authority to approve lab-grown meat without the need of our elected representatives to get involved. You know, getting uh, Congress involved is going to take another 500 years and $50 billion worth of bribes. Yeah, so... Um, because cultured meat doesn't require many animals to provide potentially vast amounts of meat, that just the stem cells are needed, proponents argued would eliminate many of the environmental impacts and ethical issues associated with factory farming. You know, like battery farming with the chickens, they cut off their feet, they cut off their beaks, uh, they, they ingest them full of um, vitamins and, and hormones. And, you know, then we eat those hormones. They're still in the meat when we eat them. Some environmental groups and animal rights advocates support lab-grown meat because it would consume fewer natural resources, avoid slaughter, and eliminate the use of growth hormones. The American Meat Science Association worries that lab-grown protein is not as safe or nutritious as traditional meat. So what does it mean for halal? Well, you see, uh, the issue was actually discussed when they first uh, grew their first lab uh, meat back in 2013. Uh, and it's been taken up by rabbis, it's been taken up by ulama, uh, even, even the Hindus have got involved, <clears throat> and, and the Buddhists, uh, the, the, the Jain fraternity that, uh, you know, they say things like, we our, our stomach isn't a graveyard, no, nothing dead goes in, I only eat live vegetables. Well, I wonder what they make about this stuff. Um, apparently the thing is, uh, the uh, stem cells must be taken from an animal that is then slaughtered via halal methods. Uh, uh, but other than that, uh, it would be halal, it would seem. Um, unless, like, you know, there's, like, say, health issues and other issues. But, but basically speaking, uh, as, as long as, uh, you know, everything is done according to direction, 
It would appear, according to the articles that I've read, uh, written by international ulama at the time of 2013, that as long as the stem cells uh, are taken from an animal that was slaughtered according to halal, then uh, the meat itself will be halal too. Maybe the MJC would disagree. I mean, uh, there are things like gelatin and so on. The MJC reckons that gelatin uh, has been reduced uh, to its most basic form, and uh, therefore you don't have to worry about whether or not it comes from a halal slaughtered animal, whereas um, um, Sanha feels very differently. Uh, so, yeah, uh, but it w- would appear that, that, that these differences aren't there. It would appear that we can eat this lab-based lab, uh, meat. Um, so anyway, uh, that's all we have time for for today. Uh, Jazakumullah for joining us. I make dua that whatever trading activity you got up today has been profitable and above all halal. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.